Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start there in our main verse for today and then move around a little bit in the scriptures. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. On Memorial Day, we usually reflect on the liberty that we have, that we can enjoy in this country. And it should remind us to appreciate that freedom even more. It's a time when we honor those who have given everything for the liberty that we enjoy. But, you know, we're living in, a, in kind of an unusual time. There's a small but pretty vocal group who are touting the benefits of socialism. And I'm not a real political guy, but... I know that at its core, socialism restricts or prohibits individual liberty in favor of more government control. Now, I don't know about you, but when every time the government takes control of something, we run into big problems. There's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, and they don't usually have the best interests of the the people at heart. And I believe that those folks, although they may be well um, meaning that when they embrace the tenets of socialism, they don't really understand the, and appreciate the blessings of true liberty and what was sacrificed for that liberty. And I believe that we uh, dishonor those who have given the greatest sacrifice when we don't appreciate the gift of liberty that we have in this country. It's often been said that freedom is never free. And I believe that to be true. And certainly if it's true in the natural, how much more is it true in the spiritual? Amen. The Bible speaks of a liberty that has been attained through someone's sacrificial death. The death of Jesus for all of humanity. And believe it or not, Christians can dishonor his death when we misrepresent that liberty. See, we've been given a gift, and we want to represent it well and accurately to both believers and unbelievers in this world so that Christ's death isn't tainted by our actions. That verse, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It tells us that all mankind has been offered this gift of liberty, which comes through God. This is spiritual liberty. This is Freedom from the bondage of sin. Because all of those who are in submission to the Lord are unchained from those bonds. This is also freedom from judgment. We know that we no longer live under law, but under grace. It's spoken of as the new covenant. I spoke about this in my Easter morning message. And... That new covenant in grace was accomplished when Jesus completed his mission. That is his death on the cross. And then it was confirmed when he rose from the dead. That is the essence of the new covenant in Christ. That means we no longer live under the law. We're no longer judged according to the law, the Old Testament law of Moses. Because Jesus, as it says in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus fulfills the law, and our righteousness is in him. See, that's why we're free as Christians. That's why we have this liberty, because Jesus Christ has done all of the work. He's paid the penalty for our sin. It's like our eternal get-out-of-jail-free card that Jesus accomplished in his sacrifice on the cross. Warren Wiersbe uh, writes in his commentary on Galatians called Be Free. He says, when a sinner trusts Christ and is born again, he is born free. He has been redeemed 
purchased by Christ and set free. So again, we look at this this, uh, theme of biblical liberty and it's freedom, freedom from the bondage of sin and its influence over our lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome those things. And as we willingly submit to Christ, He becomes our Lord. He becomes our Master. But to many, that sounds just like another form of bondage. Because now He's our Lord, He's our Master, and we're in submission to Him. Several times, the New Testament writers use the term bondservant to describe their relationship with God. But they display that as a badge of honor. They're saying, we are fully devoted followers of Christ. You know, historically, in the times of the New Testament writings, the first century and and even into many years past that, slavery was a very common thing. As a matter of fact, it's been estimated that about a third of of the people who lived in the Roman world were in some form of slavery at that time. And today, rightfully so, we're sensitive to that kind of language, considering the history of man holding another man in bondage against their will. We see that, and rightfully so, we see it as an atrocity. But notice how the Bible always seems to turn things on their head, right? Things that we look at as in one way, in the, in the natural way, spiritually, the Bible gives us a different way of looking at it, a different perspective. In Romans 6.18, Paul writes, And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So he takes something common to that day, and he constructs a spiritual lesson from it. Paul speaks about what happens when we're set free from sin. What happens? We then willingly and voluntarily become a servant of Christ. So the Bible turns the whole idea of bondage upside down when he presents it as a thing to desire. Jesus does that in Matthew 11. Check out these verses where Jesus says in verse 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, speaking at that time especially, there were many in bondage, many in under heavy labor. And many could understand the natural and physical uh, components to that. But look what Jesus says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, this is a a wonderful invitation from Jesus to all people. Instead of the weight and the oppression of maybe self-centeredness and the culture and, may I say, even religion, Jesus offers comfort and freedom. The idea is that As human beings, we will be enslaved to something in this life. We will be under submission or subjection to something in this life. We may not look at it that way. We may not see it that way, but it could be be our career. It could be the worries of this world, maybe financial concerns. Maybe broken relationships are just weighing you down and you feel that you're under, under bondage to those things. And there's a lot of validity in those concerns, no question about it. But the Bible tells us to come to Christ with those things. The Bible tells us to trade those in for his yoke, which doesn't weigh us down, which doesn't put us us under heavy burden. Jesus says that true liberty is found in a relationship with him where we yield to his ways and we allow him to lead us. Otherwise, we'll be serving another master. And that other master is an enemy of our soul. That's Satan. You know, even Bob Dylan was able to realize that when he wrote that song, Gotta Serve Somebody. 
You know, one of the verses says, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you may live in a dome. You may own guns and you may even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord and might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You know, if we're going to be a servant of anything in this life, of anything or anyone, I choose to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ knows us best. Jesus Christ has our best interest at heart. I'd rather be a servant of him. And God offers this liberty to every single person who ever has or ever will live. But remember, there's an enemy. There's somebody lurking to offer us a false freedom. To convince us that true freedom is freedom from the so-called constraints of a relationship with God. Mischaracterizing God as some sort of cosmic killjoy who's holding back from us the fullness of what liberty really means. You remember the account in Genesis 3 when it says in verses 1 through 5, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in that day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this was the scheme of of the devil from the beginning. And he still tries to pull that on us to this day. And that is that he was telling Adam and Eve, and he tells us from time to time, that God's rules are keeping you from enjoying everything that's available to you. That God is actually scared that you'll become like him, and he fears the competition. But the Bible says that the devil is a liar. And he's always trying to accuse us or to get us to turn away from God. But again, we've been given this great freedom, this great liberty in Christ. Jesus said in John 8, 35 and 36, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen. Jesus was speaking at this point to to those who may have believed in him, but haven't fully yielded to him yet. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you believe in God, but you haven't fully trusted in him for every aspect of your life. Maybe you haven't fully yielded to his call on your life. Well, then in some ways, you're still in bondage to sin in your life. But when Jesus makes us free, there's no doubt that we have liberty in Christ. But this is where this whole concept of liberty gets a little sticky. You know, as with any gift, there also comes great responsibilities, At the beginning of this message, I mentioned that we can dishonor, as Christians, we can dishonor Christ if we misrepresent the liberty that he's given to us. Galatians 5.13 speaks about this. It says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. See, as Christians, we're supposed to accurately represent Christ to the world around us. We've been given the gift of freedom from sin, freedom from the burden of the law, freedom from the penalty, which we deserve because we've missed the mark with God. 
But that doesn't mean that we can just do anything we want. That would be just plain irresponsible. And, more importantly, it would be a distortion of God's character. You know, many people come to us as pastors over the years and ask questions like, is this allowed? Can I do this as a Christian? Is this a sin? And we have these conversations with folks. And, of course, we look to the Scriptures, and wherever the Scripture is, uh, you know, is not silent or has something specific to say about certain things, we're able to point them to that and say, no, this is, obviously, this is something in the Scriptures that is not pleasing to God. Not pleasing to God. But then there's also these doubtful things that Paul writes about, right? In Romans 14, verses 1 through 3, just a little snippet of kind of what this idea is all about. Paul writes, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So what's Paul talking about? He's talking about what we would call doubtful things or things that are not specifically mentioned as sin in the Bible, those things which aren't black and white that we can't definitively say, those things which in and of themselves have no morality or immorality because most things that we come across in this life don't have that intrinsic morality or immorality. Most of the time it's what is done with those things that determine whether something is good or not and something is pleasing to God or not. And, but sometimes, and even for unbelievers, they can probably attest to this, Christians like to push the envelope, right? Sort of to the edge of that liberty that we have in Christ. And this is where we need to exhibit self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, and love, which is the, should be the underlying thing that we use in everything that we do. The title of the message today is Let Love Guide Your Liberty. So love always has to be that underlying component. And Christians in the first century that Paul was writing to here didn't have to deal with a lot of the things that we deal with in today's world. I mean, we have, we have movies, we have TV, books, magazines, the internet. We have, I mean, you can even throw in there hairstyles or clothing or drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes and different avenues of entertainment or recreation. I mean, there's all of these things at our disposal, right, that aren't, obviously aren't mentioned in the, in the scriptures. And many of those things don't have any intrinsic morality or immorality in them. And a lot of different people, including Christians, can look at these things differently and come to different conclusions. But the Bible gives great guidelines, as it always does, for us to walk in this world as Christians, talking about those things which we may consider gray areas. And I think there's two questions we need to ask if you want to just take note. And one of them is, is this pleasing to God? Is this pleasing to God? And the other question is, is this causing someone else to stumble? So we're going to deal with the first one first. Is this pleasing to God? Okay, so we can, we can handle this in a couple of different ways. One is to make this long list, right, of things that are displeasing to God. And we would hand it out to everybody. And you just follow the list and you're, you're all set. You know that if, if you do anything that's on that list, it's displeasing to God. Now, the problem arises when something comes up that's not on the list, right? I mean, I mean, how many things do we have to put on this list? Problems also arise, be- arise because we don't live our life in a, bump, in a bubble. This is very important. This is really, really important. See, our actions have an influence and effect on others, too. So those decisions we make have a different component to it. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly fond of lists. I feel too constrained by lists. And I'm always tempted to deviate from it. You can just ask my wife when she gives me a shopping list. I go to the store and I might pick up those things that are on the list, but I might pick up a lot of other things. I might even forget something that's on the list. And when I get back home, then I have to obviously run. Well, that's another story. Run back and... (laughs) But you see how lists can just be difficult things. And we wouldn't want to live under that kind of constraint. We're free, right? We have liberty in Christ. Of course, the other thing is what's on my list might not be on your list, right? So we have different ways of looking at those things. And then people can get very legalistic. This is a biblical or theological term, which, you know, takes, the, takes many different forms. You know, somebody may attempt to keep the law in order to attain salvation, and they can be very legalistic about those things. Some people may try to keep the law in order to maintain their salvation. And another way of of this legalism coming into the church and into a believer's life is that you may judge other people for not keeping certain codes of conduct that you think should be kept. So you see how muddy this becomes when you try to keep a list. Remember, Paul writes in Galatians, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Okay? So another way of dealing with these doubtful things, these gray areas, is to just live any way we want. We don't have a list. doesn't really matter. After all, we have liberty in Christ, right? We might say, I'm free in Jesus, therefore I can do anything because he died for my sins, including the one I'm about to commit. We can have that mindset. And I'm covered by his grace. See, we can be tempted to use our liberty in Christ as a license to sin. That sounds weird to a Christian, but think about it just in our day-to-day. We may try to convince ourselves or justify. The problem here is that we would be straying very far from a holy and sanctified life. You see, we're called to be separated separated, sanctified from the things of this world. When we just say, well, we can do anything because God has forgiven us and we're, we're free, we have liberty in Christ. When we say that, we represent to the world that God is okay with that. And again, we would be misrepresenting God to others. And not only unbelievers, but even believers. And we would never want to do that. So to avoid the pitfalls of either one of these things, either big long lists or just doing anything we want, God has given us something, which is a gift. He's given us something in order to kind of understand the boundaries of our liberty in the Lord. And it's called our conscience. This is a, this is a biblical thing. It's mentioned several times, especially in the New Testament. When Paul writes to the churches, he mentions this word conscience. Now, our conscience is like the smoke detectors in your home, right? They make you aware of an imminent threat to your safety, and they're a good thing. But what good is a smoke detector that's constantly misfiring? I remember, you know, how many times now they're hardwired, and you don't get get this a lot, but... You know, the batteries would start to go and they'd beep, 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 beep. Or they'd go off for no reason. And they would send false warning signals. Or worse, they, they wouldn't send any signal at all when there really was a fire. And that would be definitely a disaster. So how are... Our consciences, how can we make our consciences different than that? Different than that. We'll get into that in a second, but it reminds me of a man who came into the pastor's office and he said, Pastor, 
I've been caught up in this sinful activity and the guilt is just about all I can bear and my conscience is troubling me greatly. And so, of course, the pastor, with a great amount of, of grace and understanding, asked the man, and you came to me to know how to strengthen your willpower. And the man says, well, not exactly. I want to know how to weaken my conscience. But actually what that man wanted was to sear his conscience. See, a seared conscience is one that is inactive. A seared conscience is one that is desensitized to sin. And that's a dangerous place. A seared conscience will never warn us of impending hazards in our, to our spiritual life. A weak conscience, on the other hand, is something that can kind of happen to all of us as believers. And sometimes it happens and it goes away and, and we recognize it and we try to change. And that's kind of the opposite of a seared conscience. A weak conscience overreacts and is hypersensitive. But both of these extremes can be detrimental to our growth as a Christian. God has given us conscience as an early warning device, kind of to tell us when we're coming to the edge of that liberty. Unfortunately, many have chosen to ignore those warning signs. But just like you have to have good, you know, uh, fresh batteries in your smoke smoke detector, we need to inform our conscience. It's only as good as the information that we feed into our consciences. See, it should act as that convicting voice within us. But it will only do that according to what our belief system is. John MacArthur calls this process informing our conscience, informing our conscience. Basically, it means if we feed our conscience based on the teachings of God's word, then what will happen? Our conscience will be properly triggered, properly triggered every time something goes against God's character or something every time something is questionable in our lives. It will be neither seared into inactivity or it won't be weakened into hypersensitivity. It's going to be properly triggered because it's being informed by God's word. On the other hand, and many Christians might do this, there are a lot in the world and they may feed their conscience based on the morality or most would think the immorality of the culture. Then that level is a lot lower. Our conscience will only react when our behavior is at odds with the cultural norms of the day. And that's dangerous too. Because as society continues to decline, we will become more desensitized to things that go against God's law. And this is how a seared conscience starts. This is the beginning of a seared conscience, becoming desensitized, having those nerve endings sort of burned away and having no feeling and having no no sensitivity to what's pleasing to God. See, God has written his law on our hearts and in the minds of all men so that we know how to live a life that's pleasing to him, beneficial to us, and obviously beneficial to others. So how can we feed our conscience with godly information? Well, we might ask a question. Will this activity go against my understanding of the lordship of Jesus Christ in my life? Will this activity go against my understanding of the lordship of Jesus in my life? See, when we inform our conscience by reading the scriptures, by praying, by listening to messages, God will give us discernment over these things and direction over these things. So we ask, will this honor or dishonor God? And if our conscience has been fed the correct information, we'll be led in the proper way. Another question we might ask is, will this be spiritually profitable? 1 Corinthians 6.12, the beginning of that verse, again, Paul speaks about this subject a lot. He says, all things are lawful for me, 
but not all, but all things are not helpful. Is this profitable? Is what you're about to engage in profitable to your growth? Will it contribute to your closeness with Jesus Christ? I'll give you an example. It, I don't know about you, but I'm an early riser. But many of you like to maybe sleep in. And certainly I might be able to justify sleeping late on a Sunday morning because it's been a really busy work week. And certainly rest is important, right, to my physical well-being and mental well-being. But if I overdo it, now rest is a good thing, but if I overdo it, it will become unprofitable to me. The book of Proverbs speaks about this. And it speaks about a lot about the excesses in things. And in Proverbs 10, 4, and 5, the writer says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. See, sleep is a good and necessary thing. This is not something that has any intrinsic morality or immorality, but it's something that we can use for, to please God or use to dishonor God. It can produce laziness if we overdo it, right? And it be, can become detrimental to my growth. Another question as we're trying to inform our consciences properly by the word of God is, will this activity bring me into bondage? Will this activity bring me into bondage? Paul writes in the second half of that verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me. Again, freedom in Christ, right? Liberty in Christ. But I will not be brought under the power of any. See, there's a, there's a limit, Paul is saying here, to our liberty, right? There's a limit to our liberty. Think about all the things that distract us or control us or enslave us in this life? Can the activity you're about to engage in become a bad habit? Maybe. The Bible says we're to be bondservants of Jesus. So we ask if this activity will bring us into bondage to something other than Christ. That's a question we want to ask. And then the second part, See, the first part was more internal. The second question that we want to ask in this overall concept of our liberty in Christ is, will this activity cause someone else to stumble? Now, many of you who, uh, I know for me, when I first started reading the Bible, this word stumble, I wasn't sure what it meant. I wasn't sure what it meant until I saw that it was used more often many, many times throughout the scriptures. So something that we do could cause someone else to stumble, to fall, to get tripped up. And we're talking spiritually. We're talking in their walk. Something we do could put an obstacle in their way to a closer walk with Jesus. Now what Paul is speaking about here is mostly a newer believer or maybe an immature Christian that has a weaker conscience, right? But honestly, someone can be a Christian for years and still be susceptible to that. We may get stumbled over many things until we seek the Lord and maybe he matures us in those things. And we're going to encounter these people throughout our life as Christians. And many of us, most of us, have probably been there at one point or are there now with this concept of, a, of a, a weaker conscience or being stumbled by, by a lot of things. And we need to be sensitive to that as believers. We need to be very, very sensitive to that. Now, I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture, and I, it's going to be up here on the screen behind me so you can follow along. But you have to get the idea, the context of what Paul is talking about. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, in verse 1, <clears throat> now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Remember that. Remember those words. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love, love builds up. 
And then in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in this world and that there is no other God but one. And then uh, the longer portion here in verses 7 to 13, just follow along and then we're going to unpack it for a few minutes. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat, it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled but food does not commend us to God for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we do not eat are we the worse but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? You get you getting the idea here? So you're a Christian. You have liberty in Christ. You're eating meat, which is perfectly fine. And even meat that at that time they would do animal sacrifices. But they would reserve some of it back and they would barbecue it. And you can eat it. And... Because of your knowledge, you're, you're able to do that. But it says in verse 11, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. So you have liberty, you have freedom. You can eat those things. It doesn't bother you. doesn't bother your conscience. But somebody who maybe is a newer believer or just hasn't gotten to that maturity yet will be, will be stumbled by that. And it says in verse 12 and 13, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Believer, if you're stronger in your faith and you can do certain things and they don't bother your conscience, but it, it's a sin against someone else, then you need to be able to put a restriction on that behavior, on that activity. Because Paul says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, is Paul saying that we should all become vegetarians? No. It's perfectly fine to eat meat. He has liberty to do that. But you notice the love by which Paul is making this example here. If, if, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll become a vegetarian. How awesome is that? How much sacrifice does that take for someone who's a meat lover? <laughs> like I am. I can't wait for the rib contest on Saturday. <laughs> Don't look at me. I'm trying, I won't try to make you stumble. Notice how many times in those passages, in that passage, that Paul mentions the word conscience. He understands that only a properly informed conscience will produce actions that benefit others. Will this help others by my example? Will this help others? Will my actions draw people to Christ or chase them away from Christ? We have that liberty. But it must be tempered by something. Our liberty must be guided by something internal, not external. There's another law at work here. And that's the law of love. That's the law of love. And it's always the highest law when it comes to our relationship with God and in in anything we do. Love will always be the highest law. I'm going to read another chunk of, of, of verses here. I know this is a lot to take in. I'll put up the verses on the, uh, on the Facebook group if you want to refer back to them. But Paul writes, obviously there was something going on in the Corinthian church that Paul had to write about this quite extensively. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 10, I'm just going to read through it, and you'll start to see the same theme, the same idea. And the law of love that overarches, that covers all of these decisions. And he writes in verses 24 to 33, let no one seek his own. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market 
asking no questions for conscience's sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all of its fullness. So generally speaking, everything's available. Even the, even the, uh, the Old Testament dietary laws, we can throw them out. It's okay. And everything's given by the Lord and is available and, and we, can, we can do it. But he says here, and if any of you does, who does not believe invites you to dinner, so let's say you're invited to someone's house, right? And you desire to go, you want to go, they're, they're a friend, you've known them for years or, or whatever, and you go and you eat whatever's set before you, ask no question for conscience's sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience's sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, because your, your own conscience is okay with that, right? You're not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Because there's a higher law at work. Because there's a higher law at work. Love. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Because there's another law at work. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. Listen to this. Not seeking my own profit, not being self-centered, but the profit of many that they may be saved. That's the sacrifice that Paul made. It's not about me. My conscience is clear. I can do this, but I'm thinking of the other person. I'm thinking of the other person. And notice, he says, give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. This is not just believer to believer. This is how we, how we conduct ourselves all the time. Remember, he was invited by a non-believer to their house. So there's no compulsion necessarily for us. We're invited to an unbeliever's house and they may offer us anything. But I'll just kind of summarize this scene. So you're invited to someone's house. They're not a believer. There's several people around the dinner table and somebody there mentions that the meat that's being served has been offered to idols. Now, probably wouldn't happen in today's day, but try to think of a modern day uh, example of that. What that means is that, that they would probably drain the blood and offer a blood sacrifice or give a portion of the animal to be, to be burned and then the rest of it they, part, they, they hold back and they partake it as a family. You know that an idol is nothing. Your conscience is fine with that. But for the sake of others, and especially the one who mentioned it to you, and to avoid offending anyone there, because we never make, want to make an offense as a Christian, we want to restrict our liberty, right? Not for your own benefit, Paul says, but so that others may see your love for them. So that others may see Christ in us, right? That's how we're supposed to do this. Now, this is a common thing. This can happen any time. This could happen this weekend when you go to a barbecue at somebody's house, right? We never want to offend. We never want to offend. We always want to consider the other person. We never want to become so self-absorbed that we forget our impact on others by our actions. And it's all about this God-given gift called conscience. It's all about informing our conscience with the things of God, with the, with the, the Bible, seeking the Lord in all of these things. And remember we talked before about uh, how a faulty smoke detector would, is, is really dangerous. A faulty conscience can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. So in the spiritual sense, the same thing happens. Now to give us, as we, as we kind of close up here, <clears throat> 
to give us a dramatic illustration of this in the physical, I want to show a quick video. And then we'll come back and wrap it up after that. 84-year-old Harry Truman felt the quakes, but he also felt they wouldn't do him any harm. You know, I've been used to them. There have been 400 now in trees. At least 400 has hit me. Day and night has kept me shaking around, quivering. Truman ran the lodge on the shore of Spirit Lake, which lay directly north of the volcano. He'd watched as scientists talked about what the volcano could do to the area around it. But Truman refused to believe that the mountain was dangerous. I look at that stuff on television, radio, and I said, oh, poo. The press has blowed it up. They have blowed it out of all proportion. Now, all this black stuff coming out of the mountain here, that, that's not being blown up by the press. No, it's not being blown up by the press, but the magnitude of the thing, the disaster thing, of the thing, I think that they're, they're exaggerating. KGW radio newsman Mike Beard says he talked to Harry Truman nearly every time he went to the mountain. He never really expected that there was going to be any problem. He said it might erupt, but it's never going to reach old Harry. You know, it might spew out some rock and lava, but it's never going to never going to bother Harry Truman. He made my life very difficult. Dixie Lee Ray was governor of Washington when the mountain began acting up. She does not remember Harry Truman fondly. He was uh, always there poo-pooing everything that the state did. And the press loved him. The press did not love state government. Governor Ray signed an executive order on April 3, 1980, restricting access to areas near the mountain. That was about two weeks after the earthquake started and a month and a half before the May eruption. He made fun of and helped to encourage people to make it a game to see if they could get around the roadblocks. The former governor also believes Truman may have been persuaded by the press. They build him up as uh, the, the hero who would stick it out. And uh, he did. He might have stayed there uh, way beyond the time that everybody was suggesting, all the officials, everybody knew that he should clear out of there. He may have stayed put because of that. He had lived there for more than 50 years. And on the evening of May 17, 1980, Truman again refused to go. The next day, Spirit Lake Lodge and Harry Truman disappeared in the blast, which turned the lake from a vacation spot in the Pacific Northwest into a wasteland and the graveyard for 21 people who were never found. Anybody remember Mount St. Helens erupting in 1980? Right? It was the deadliest and most economically destructive volcanic event in the history of the United States. 57 people were killed. 250 homes, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railways, and 185 miles of highway were destroyed. Old Harry Truman was a resident of the state, lived on the bottom of Mount St. Helens, and he never believed all the warning signs. He never believed the evidence. Listen. The spiritual application here is pretty obvious. Harry ignored all the warning signs, made his decision based on faulty information and his own stubbornness. And as Christians, we can do that too. We can, we can have faulty information informing our conscience of things. And then we can also be stubborn that we're going to do this regardless. We're going to ignore those warning signs that God gives us in our conscience. See, God's faithful. God's faithful to give us everything we need to make choices that are glorifying to him, that are pleasing to him, that build us up in our faith, and also that build up others and not tear them down and not cause others to stumble. See, church, for those who are believers, you know what the word says. We should pay more attention to Paul's exhortation here in these various scriptures. And rather than exercising or even parading all of our freedoms, we need to be mindful of how our example might impact others. And we talked a lot about those doubtful things, those things that are not black and white, but how much more so those things that are specifically discussed in the scriptures, right? Let us never 
back to the beginning. Let us never dishonor the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to set us free. Always let love guide your liberty. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you tonight and uh, today, and we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And as the worship team comes forward, maybe there are some of you who never really quite understood what a relationship with God is all about and are still in bondage to the things of this world and to the enemy of your soul. And you thought that you would just be trading one set of shackles for another if you came to Jesus. That he would just restrict you from doing all those things that you want to do. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus said that I have come to give life, to bring life, abundant life. There is nothing more freeing than a relationship with Jesus where we cast our care upon him because he cares for us. Where we seek him in making those decisions and choices in our day to day. And he's faithful to guide and direct us. If you want that kind of liberty, that true freedom to live in this world the way God has intended you, I encourage you to come forward this morning. Give your life to God. Turn over your life to him. Allow him to lead and guide and to set your life in his hands. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.